Hey, welcome to another episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Before we get started, I've got a quick update. You know, I've had a lot of fun getting the first year of this podcast under my belt, and I'm looking forward to many more episodes. I'm I'm hitting my stride, I think, and I'm finding aspects of the work, you know, a bit hard to get myself to do, and so I'm going to change up a little bit. Uh, you know, adjusting these details, I don't think you'll really care about, and that's what I get to enjoy having the full license of running this thing myself. So I'd still love your feedback and suggestions, particularly if you have any guests you'd like to suggest or subject to my questioning, um, you know, but you could tweet or direct message me or leave me comments on an episode and I'll get more out this year and we'll have more fun with it. But this month I've got another gem. Laura Schrag at Hennepin Health gave me some time, and like my previous guest who also worked at Hennepin, uh, it was fun to hear another voice amplifying what kind of a fun place it is to work, and particularly learn and teach at as well. Laura shared so many tips and rules of thumb that I feel like I could write a whole book on an emergency medicine practice with what she gave me. We cruised through all these tips, and I think they're really going to be helpful for use on and off the floor for you. It was fun to hear her perspective on a practice first in a community setting and then back in an academic setting. I think the comparing and contrasting people who've worked in both settings can help, particularly the group of people that are just about to graduate or just recently graduated, make a transition into the community or even uh, advance in how they're seeing patients in an academic setting. So that's kind of where I've had this particular interest in the last few months. So enough of me rambling on. Let's get on and listen to Laura's wisdom. All right. Well, Laura Schrag, thank you for joining me on uh, this podcast, uh, Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. I am excited to interview another person here at Hennepin. I'm looking forward to it, Brad. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I uh, I got your name from one of uh, my friends from the past. Uh, that's uh, I don't connect with a lot anymore, but he had told me how impressed he was with your practice uh, when you're at North Memorial. And uh, you've been here at Hennepin. You were just telling me about five years now. And I really have, uh, as I was talking with Tom Wyatt last month, uh, enjoyed kind of hearing people who have spent time in both the community and academic settings, particularly because I'm trying to reach out to people who are just recently out of their residency training so that um, I think that's there's a gap of knowledge that residency can't quite give you about what it's like to transition into the community in particular. Um, and even for, in part, because there's a lot of podcasts out there in emergency medicine, but they're a lot of them are critical care focused and really focused at people in training. But I'm trying to learn from anyone who's got a long set of years behind them, like what's made them keep coming back and not uh, flamed out in, in medicine. So I heard you're a good example of that, so I'm excited to learn more. Well, thanks, Brad. Um, now, do you have any... Um, I, I often start my podcast with, um, are you happy in your job? And just kind of open it from there. Yeah. So um, this is what I can tell you. I uh, love my job. I really only do this job because I want to do it um, and I enjoy it. Uh, I am in a good position in my life that um, I only come to work because I want to, and that is a great feeling. And uh, has that have you had periods in your career where that's been challenged, where you've felt like more than just a shift or a weekend or something like that, where you've really had some times where you're like, boy, this is tough. I'm questioning either where I'm at in this 
gig or where I am in this career or you've thought about making a big change? I never thought about making a big change, but I think um, just like most people in medicine or in any career, we all have our ups and downs. And I certainly remember um, a time when I was at North Memorial that uh, I had just started a family. So I had young kids. Uh I have a working spouse and um, the pace gets to be quite a lot. And there's a time, I think, where you have a sense that you feel like you're not doing a good job at anything because you're just trying to keep so many balls in the air. Yeah. And in my experience, that can come from in the job. It can come from factors outside parenting, just learning what that's about or financial or others like, um, like spouse or partner, their stress or their life changes can really impact that. Um, did you have a sense of you knew exactly where it was coming from or did, was it kind of a multifactorial thing? Yeah, I think for me it was a multifactorial thing. You know, all of us are perfectionists, right? Or we wouldn't do a job like this. And so we we all want to do the perfect job at everything, whether it's parenting, uh, being uh, in a marriage um, or in your career in medicine. And the bottom line is you can't, you know, go 110% at all three. It's just a balancing act. Yeah. Boy, I feel like, (laughs) I feel like I know how that, I just, uh, I don't know why I'm stumbling on the words there. It's just, it it really resonates with me that um, um, there's, there's this pace that you try to figure out that's, that's a healthy one that I think is difficult to even understand when you're in training because you're at that throttle level is so maxed out. And, and even I think after you leave, did you feel that, that, that after leaving your training that you kept the throttle pretty high? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you're in the throes of residency, you kind of don't know better. Yeah. And you think, you know, working at that pace is normal. Yeah. And then I always tell the residents now when they take a job and they leave that they should expect that they're not going to like the job for the first six months. Yeah. And, and then, and, but to stick with it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, anytime you change jobs, it's stressful, whether um, you're in medicine or in a different career. And I think uh, it just takes a while to settle in. And we're all super hard on ourselves. We're our worst critic. We want to be perfect. We want to be the fastest, the best, the most liked. And that's uh, a difficult task for a young physician. It is. And do you you have a sense in your own life? Did you have a period of time like after leaving that you can remember where you or anything in particular that made you go, hey, maybe my my throttle is just set at the wrong level and I need to either scale back on work or on some other aspect to make space for work or any anything like that you recall? Uh, I don't know if there was one thing, but yeah. I think you reach a point where you think, boy, is this sustainable? And then you just have to take pause and kind of set your priorities. And for me, work-life balance has always been a big priority. Um, one of the benefits of working at North when I did was that I was only doing shifts. And so when I was there, I could just focus on that. When I walked out the door, it was essentially someone else's problem. Yeah. Um, and for a new mom and a young parent, I think that that is a uh, very attractive model to do a good job at home. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, obviously a lot of people are in emergency medicine um, maybe not only because of, but the boundaries that it allows you to set in some jobs um, are pretty stark. I yeah. mean, there's no pager. <laughs> there's no, there may be a 
disaster pager or disaster call out type of scenario, but certainly figuring out exactly how to set your schedule up and then not worrying about um, other aspects of it, whether it's meeting or call goes a long way. And that's probably why a lot of people pick this specialty, I would imagine. Yeah, no, I agree. You're either on or you're off, right? So work hard, play hard. Yeah. And then do you feel like um, in that community practice, did you feel pretty well supported as you started out of your uh, educational phase in life into more of the practice phase in terms of transitioning and figuring out how to work during that shift? Because my impression is they're pretty intense shifts as you come out. You're you're working pretty hard. You're often starting in the summer and you are working in a group that's probably looking for somebody to help carry the load. And that maybe there are not any specifics you can recall, but I think I'm trying to help understand how to help people gauge that, um, how hard to work during the shift and once they leave. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing is, I'm super glad to be where I am right now and back here, but I will tell you, I feel very lucky to have spent all the time at North that I did, and I feel very indebted to my partners, to the patients that I took care of, to the nurses that helped me out, and um, I really feel like I kind of grew up there. Yeah. Because you come out, and you think you know everything, and then day one, you realize very quickly you don't. Um, uh, And so I did learn, you know, to kind of pace myself a little bit during the shift in the sense that you don't have to see the most people, uh, especially out of the gate, to ask a lot of questions. I always, as I got further along, worried a little about a little bit about our new partners that came out, and it seemed like for a whole shift they didn't ask any questions, and it yeah. just seems to me, I wonder how they know everything, but likely they don't. Yeah. Um, so I relied a lot on the people that I worked with. Um, one of the things that was really. I think special for me and unique for me was that um, North Memorial has probably the strongest group of women um, in the community. Um, and, you know, they they were the trailblazers for people like myself. They had families, they had working spouses, they worked full time, they uh, didn't make excuses, they showed up every day, they were 100% reliable, and I think kind of a lot of the backbone of that group. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a powerhouse in that regard. And the, you know, I've talked to a few others, not through this podcast, but uh, who shared that same attitude that um, it was a great, it's a great place to um, see really strong women physicians who um, really um, embody what it means not to be... Um, Oh, what am I trying to say? There's really like you kind of described, there's not really an excuses mentality at yeah. all there. And um, I've I've been friends with a number of nurses from there too. And they also uh, had shared that with me. And so it's like, it's really fun for uh, some of the women nurses there who tell me like it's empowering to see a lot of the docs take care of a lot of very complex, challenging physicians or um, patients there. Um and have a group of staff members that totally supported him in that way. And it was, um, it's interesting to hear you say that. Uh, did you feel like there was a, oh, like did they, was it an active group that took you under your wing or do you feel more like it was, there was no 
question you were already meeting? Was there a purposeful approach to women in emergency medicine there? Uh, No, I don't think so. You know, one of the interesting things, Brad, is I don't necessarily think of myself as a female emergency physician. I just think of myself as an emergency physician, and I happen to be female. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the mentality of the women there um, and sort of the no excuses. They don't differentiate themselves. They just come to work, work hard, um, do what everyone else does. And um, I think they stand out a little bit because uh, they maybe are women, but uh, they really stand out because their skills are so great. Um, yeah. And that's where I think, I, as I've talked to other women on this podcast, trying to figure out um, in those areas where uh, young grads are coming out, if they should, like, how how do they try to look for either special mentorship or just any mentorship, whether it's from a woman or from others? Is I've gotten some nuanced differences on what others say, and so I'm interested to hear the different perspectives that other people share. So that kind of a, I don't know that you need a woman's support program. You just need a group support program yeah. is kind of what I think, I you know, looking for people that are kind of at the same spot in their life as you um, or people that have just been there is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And that, um, were you uh, with others that started there about the same time? or uh, There were a couple people just ahead of me. Um, Amy Kohler, who was one of the first Regions yeah. graduates, um, was a year ahead of me and, you know, had kind of done all the things I was just starting to do. And yeah. if you're going to look up to somebody, that's certainly somebody sure. to look up to. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and it sounds like you would recommend to new grads now to just ask those questions and um, don't assume you know it all. Yeah, just absolutely. Primal kind of just assume that you're still learning even though you're yep. out of your residency. And part of it is you may know the medicine, but you might not know the system. So there's, you know, all these nuances to each little system that's a little bit different. And even though you did it one way for three or four years during your training, um, you can do the medicine the same way, but the process of admitting a patient or calling a consultant or who takes this, who takes that is, I think, unique to each place. Yeah. Is there anything that you can, that any specifics that you can think of that you changed after leaving residency that you would use or that you see people doing now or that you saw um, newer grads come out of the program, like you mentioned, not asking many questions, but then try to get them onto a different track on a particular topic, like how to work with consultants or how to manage their charts or um, how to manage the working with the nursing staff or any other aspects of that you can recall? Yeah, I think one of the big adjustments for me coming from, you know, residency to community practice is when you work out in the community, the nurses really do a lot of your work, right? And the techs do a lot of your work. And so I think um, one for me, one of the keys to feeling successful anyway was to sort of empower every staff member to function independently at their level of training so that the secretaries, you know, can make decisions independently of me, the nurses can make uh, decisions independently of me, the HCAs can make uh, decisions independently of me. And if everyone just does their job, it leads to a lot less work for me. 
Right. Um, and I try to empower those people, the physician's assistants, the nurse practitioners, you know, to function independently and try really hard not to criticize the little things and let them just make their own decisions. Oh, I kind of want to unpack that a little bit because one of the things I see often um, that we I constantly try to discuss is not, um, with my colleagues, uh, physician ass- physicians or physician assistants, residents is like second guessing triage. Like, why did that person get sent here? Or why did this or that? I'm like, honestly, every time you say any, it has to be highly managed constructive feedback for that to not turn into this. Well, I just won't make that decision in the future which is never the option you really want. No, absolutely. You and I, you know, we make thousands of decisions every yeah. day. We don't need another thousand that someone else could have made. Yeah. And um, and have, can you recall any times where you've figured out how to sort of, is there a role for giving feedback on those decisions in the moment? Um That was a tough way to ask that question, but does that make sense? If yeah. you get, I wish you had done this or you... I don't really need that x-ray you ordered for me or something like that. Yeah. You know, um, someone that you had mentioned before we started this today is Michelle Byros. I think all of us have learned like a million things from her, right? Right. She's kind of famous uh, for this saying. She often would say if she had a consultant or a resident or a nurse that um, did something not exactly the way she would want to do it, she would say something to this effect of, well, you know, I think a lot of times that that is a good way to do it, but I think in this instance (laughs) that we should do it this way. And it's a very non-confrontational way to sort of redirect um, efforts. And I think people feel reassured. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I think it enables, I, a lot of times I would, this is less about giving the feedback to the person who made the decision, but more me looking at somebody who just criticized it. And I'm like, you just start seeing all of the yeah. ones that they got right. And so when you just focus on the one that you feel like is not where you would want it to be, it's a pretty tough it's pretty hard to even give that message. The flip side is I also don't love the world where there's no feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And you're trying to like save it all to give to a manager saying like this person always gets the triage wrong. Like that doesn't feel like a good way. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that's um that is a, a very effective and simple way to build somebody up right. while just making a slight constructive yeah. criticism of this. And you know, the difficult conversations, if we don't have them, it's not fair. It's yeah. not fair to the person on the receiving end that hears about it seven days later in yeah. an email or in an evaluation that they read, but you didn't have the discussion with sure. them. Sure. Yeah. And I think, um, boy, that's it feels like the longer you're in emergency medicine with that team kind of thing is like, I don't know, I don't know if I can count a, uh, calculate how much of your shift is actually doing that type of work. But if you think of all the staff that you're supervising, um, and maybe not in the formal, I'm writing a supervision statement, but more of just the general, I'm the captain of the ship. That skill is so powerful to get right and to get that team running the way you need them to um, so that they're making all these decisions on your behalf, the right ones at a high frequency at a time. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking more about that. Do you, um, are there any other aspects of, um, that first few years out or the first decade out even that you feel like you've kind of changed over time based on building wisdom or seeing other or trying it a certain way and then realizing you had to back up and find a different way? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think one thing 
going into the community from any residency is every physician needs to realize that they've only done it one way. They've only done it the Hennepin way, or they've only done it the region's yeah. way, or they've only done it X, Y, and Z way. And uh, the longer that you practice medicine, I think the more perspective that you have that there's many ways to do the same thing. Yeah. And if you go in with an open mind and are willing to kind of hear what others say, you may realize even that the way that uh, they do it, you may like in the end better. Yeah. And and I bet that's even more you have more wisdom on that as you came back to Hennepin yeah. and saw that like, wow, the th- way I learned is the one way and then I unlearned and now that I'm back. Yeah. Um, Perspective, I'm sh- right? I'm sure you just get a lot of different ideas about trying to help people see that there are other ways than the way that's been done here. Yeah. I know that people bring that back to regions a lot since there's a lot of regions lifers too, I guess I'll call it. But, right. Um, and then um, I guess one of the aspects of uh, community practice is that efficiency aspect. I wanted to get into that a little bit. In addition to um, supporting your staff to make a lot of decisions for you um, and having a department that's building up those policies, procedures, and culture, are there any other aspects to um, just managing your shift either before you start, during the startup, near the end that you'd want to call out or you've tried to show other people yeah, you know, Brad, if you're focusing on efficiency, I think um, one thing uh, that really helps or at least helped me was um, to just make a decision, right? Don't be afraid to make a decision. And if you have a decision in front of you and um, you're trying to talk yourself out of something, you're likely making the wrong decision. Yeah. So I think um, just being uh, very upfront with the patient, with the nurse, so that everyone knows the plan, um, and you know, making a decision, but yet being flexible that things can change. Um, you know, I was always good at managing multiple patients. That was one of my strengths was keeping many balls in the air. And I think uh, that's a skill you can learn. Um, some people are just a little bit better at it than not. Um, I sort of would batch my patients, so I would go see three or four patients and then kind of out of one room right into the next almost. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, uh, the results would kind of come back from, then you could work on your charting from the last patients and try to get them admitted the last three or four you had. And then the following patients results would come back and you could make dispositions on those. Um, I think the other thing is you learn just to plan ahead, right? You see the chief complaint and you realize I'm probably going to have to use ultrasound. Let me just wheel into the room with the ultrasound or wheel into the room with the ENT cart um, and try to plan ahead a little bit. Um, and, you know, I practiced medicine before the days of electronic medical records, so uh-huh. I've seen this thing come full circle. Yeah. Well, and that's part of what um, I've been pretty instrumental in trying to move us from paper to the electronic format. What I've noticed through that whole time is the people who on paper or on voice rec- or voice-based um, dictation and transcription were about the same amount of efficient as they were in the e- in the EHR world, at least when compared to everybody else, is that uh, the people who figured it out on paper figured it out electronically. And those who were behind on paper were behind on electronic. Now, the whole group might have become less efficient if you want to get into the whole, does the EHR make you more or less efficient? But in general, I found that the 
like the per provider patterns still stuck. Yeah, absolutely. Across. I think you're hundred percent. And that's kind of where I I've tried to discover how how do you you know you kind of mentioned um, juggling multiple people and the skills you've learned whether you're aware of them or not aware is another yeah. level. And <clears throat> how do you um, help people move from one tier to another? If, if there were such a thing as yeah. tiers is one of the things I'm trying to discover. Cause I feel like I was never anywhere close to the fastest person. And um, I felt like I was good, but I've also probably challenged, had a lot of my own perfectionism trying to be challenged or doing it sequentially instead of in parallel, um, which I've changed a lot over the years. But, um, but trying to help people, others see that in themselves and coach them to try something different is something I've continually tried to figure out. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have the answer to improve other people's efficiency. I mean, I can tell you a few things. You know, we talk about task switching. We talk about multitasking. We talk about prioritizing. I think uh, one of the things, um, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this, I uh, put myself through medical school waiting tables. No, I'm not going to laugh. And I think that uh, certainly helped me. Right. Yeah. It's well, the I think- same job. You have like six to eight tables. You got all these things coming oh. at you from different directions, different demands. You yep. have to prioritize, keep everything straight. I think. Um, no, I, I actually think that that's exactly. In fact, when I was a resident, there was um, a number of different faculty who, would, who had prior table waiting experience who would tell you exactly that. It looked like you can't. You can't just let do one table at a time. It right. doesn't work like that. Yeah. And that experience they built to there really helped them see um, lots of things happening at once and keeping the plate spinning. Yeah. Um, and that's probably where I try to help. Um, when you describe people who can do it a little better than others, I, I do wonder if there are some underlying foundational skills that people built outside of medicine or outside of um, their medical training whether it's that help them or actually hold them back because they're just so anchored in something that they did. They had to maybe doing it sequentially because this is with some other job that they had. I'm trying to think of some example, but I can't. But uh, that that's a, that's an interesting thing. I almost would love to instantly have all the data to do the prior job survey right. in emergency medicine to see how many people waited tables. Yeah. The other thing I think that does help people is if you can learn to do two things at once, maybe meaning you can be talking to the patient <laughs> while you're examining them yeah. or while you're pulling up their old records and going through things. Um, and I think that's a difficult thing to learn, mostly because you want to make sure that the patient understands that if you're doing two things, you are still listening to them. Yeah. Um, and that's a skill. That was actually once scribes kind of came into be to being. What I found, scribes actually, I love working with scribes. I would work every shift with a scribe if possible. Um, it didn't make me any more efficient, but my job satisfaction was just tremendously more because I felt I wasn't distracted. I could just focus on the patient and yeah. not be constantly jotting things down or trying sure. to look things up. Um, a great scribe is, you know, worth their weight in gold. So. Yeah. As they go on to their destination Correct. career. <laughs> yeah. As you get another scribe. In. Um, yeah. And that's exactly where, um, you know, we've been talking a bit about that focus. And um, as you work with the patient, we've, uh, you know, are there any 
Can you think of any methods by which you can double uh, or do two things at once with the patient that you use to help to keep the patient oriented to, hey, I might look like I'm not paying attention, but I am. Yeah. Does anything come to mind? Um, so, you know, often when I walk into the room, the patient is not undressed. Yeah. So I will, while I'm introducing myself, et cetera, help them get undressed and get in bed because it saves you, you know, two to three minutes, maybe five on each patient. And then while I'm examining them, I, I, I usually, I try really hard when I come in to sit down, take the history, give them my full attention. And then once I sort of have a gist of, you know, what the workup is going to be in the plan, I'm examining them. And while I'm examining them, I will tell them what we're going to do and what the, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do an EKG. We're going to do a chest x-ray. We're going to draw some labs. The nurse will come in, give you some pain medicine. I'll come back in and check on you. All of this will take about this amount of time. Um, And I think it condenses, you know, the uh, visit. But I, I do really think that um, what patients want is they want to be heard. Yeah. And so if you come in, you set the tone, you introduce yourself, and you sit down, they feel like they have your undivided attention. Yeah. I think that's um, – I'm, I'm glad you described it like that. And the way reason is because I can envision when you start by saying, I do two things at once, and I – that you could envision that that's not how it works. You come in and you start tearing clothes off and you start like, let me look at your heart. Okay, why were you here? Okay, chest pain. Yeah, we're going to get this. I'll see you. Like that's one version of fast yep. doing things at one time. But I think um, having that, okay, the first step, it's hard to do multiple things at once, which is introduce yourself, get your, who's in the room with you, yeah. what are their relationships or things like that. Who's actually driving the boat here? <laughs> like who brought you or you know, did you come in because you wanted to, or am I really here to address your concerns or something like that is a lot of what I spend that first few moments doing. But, um, and it sounds like, um, I've talked to other people about looking through the medical record while you're in the room and these, I'm just going to look at your records and kind of thing. Um, and it sounds like you do a lot of that with, even with the exam, I'm trying to think of that's something I don't think I purposely it's hard to it's hard to tell when you have your own practice of yep. like even like retrospectively I'm looking at the wall thinking how much do I do that do I do could I do more of it because um, I think I do some of it particularly when I'm supervising but um, but that's a that's I'll have to think more about that so I appreciate you sharing that I think um, another good thing for people to know when they first start in private practice or in the community is when you walk into the room and the nurse is in there. Yeah. They've likely already taken a good chunk of the history. Yeah. And I um will just say, you know, is it okay if, you know, nurse so and so catches me up? Yeah. And they can condense their ten minute history often into thirty seconds. Yeah. The patient is listening to make sure they got it accurately yeah. and the nurse feels heard. Yeah. I can tell you it is very unsuccessful for physicians if they come in and they just interrupt do not acknowledge the nurse at all and then move forward. Yeah. And that happens. Yeah. No, that happens a lot. Um, and, and that's, again, with that supervision level, I see that happening <laughs> more often than you want to. And and it plays off back into that because if the nurse picks up on something, you're like, oh, and by the way, do you also want to get X? You're like, oh, yeah, I do want to get that. I'm glad I thought of that not 45 minutes from now that I really wanted that and that but that person often won't speak up if you steamrolled right over them yeah absolutely and you and I both know this because we supervise people patients tell every single person that goes into the room some variation of the things so people hear different things yeah 
yeah, I've done a lot more, especially in supervising. Um, but that happens outside of academics, like with PAs or when you're sharing visits, trying to summarize like, Hey, I, here's how I understand. And it's a little bit chief complaint based. Like there's something like syncope. I usually just want to hear you say it again. Yeah. Um, chest pain. I'm happy to say, I understand you've got this discomfort right here. It's been going on. Is that about right? And, yeah. and that feels like a enabling way for me to speed it up as well as, um, give them a chance to validate what we as a system have heard. I think. Yeah. And I think the patients appreciate it because yeah. they don't have to tell the same story seven times. Right, right, right. And actually, I probably put that into the little intro speech. It's like, so you don't have to repeat yourself again. Yeah. <laughs> and let me highlight why I think you don't want me to go through that again. Um, yeah. Anything else you could think of or about, you mentioned about batching. Are there any sort of like cadence to the beginning and the end of your shift that you try to um, when you come when you come on to a shift, you typically the first part they're waiting for you. So yeah. there's a bunch of patients, you know, with your name on them, um, whether you know it or not. So you hit it hard, and then the end of the shift, it's you know kind of an art to figure out how to close out that uh, uh, shift without getting stuck late. In academics, we tend to sign everything out. And then you go into the world where you sign nothing out, right? Like if you're going to sign out a patient, it has to be all tucked in, nothing really to check, and the whole plan. What are you saying? There's no like procedural sedation for facial pediatric repair? Exactly. And can you do this laceration for me? (laughs) But um, so I kind of uh, over time figured out this. I think it depends a little on the system you work in, but I think you can do most things in two hours. So if I'm going to end a shift at three o'clock, at one o'clock, I try super hard to pick up three or four or five patients so that then in the last hour, the person that's that I'm there, the person that's working alongside of me doesn't already have a heavy load so that I have a heavy load two hours before the end of right. my shift. And then you can sort of tailor it off. Some systems in the community um, are well-designed so that they put some lower acuity things into your area towards the end of your shift. Not all systems are that way. North was not that way, but I know, you know, some of the other EPA hospitals have sort of adjusted their triage that way, which is a really a good use of time. And, um, but you're kind of describing even in the absence of that acuity adjusting, um, you would still try to work and say, Hey, and most people I can get from eval diagnostic workup and disposition in, two hours. in that two hours. You might think you can do it in an hour, but you can't. It really takes two hours. Yeah. It really takes two hours. Yeah. And, and some of those are like, it's yeah. And it's that balance of trying to not cherry pick. Right. Absolutely. But like, I mean, you don't want to get the, well, I guess I'm going to have to get the MR on you and spend four hours waiting for that. But um, on the other hand, I th- it, what you're describing also is this discipline of trying to like, it, it's almost like this, um, the end of the shift sprint that you're develop a skill in over the years. Yeah. Like, Hey, how I know I'm going to have to do this and this cause it only hurts me if I, if I don't do it right. in a very disciplined way as compared to, I don't know, I'll pick these up and I'll blame the system if it doesn't go the way I want and just sign them out. Is that a yeah, fair statement? No, I think that's very fair. And, you know, I think the hard thing is, Brad, two hours left of your shift, you already feel like you have a full load. But if you don't pick up more patients right then, then by the end you have, like, nobody. Yeah. And the person that you're working with is drowning. Well, and you might be staring at some things that came in at an hour that 
There's no way you can finish. You can't finish and you're doing nothing. Yes. So you're like staring at things that could be done. Like that's kind of what you're describing. And you're right. That kind of goes with which shift and which, um, how things go. But I, I can see how that really helps you focus an effort of work, particularly at a time when you may be starting to drag, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, kind you're of tired, this, right? You're Decision like, fatigue, all those things come into play. Yeah. And um and as you do you feel like you're you've built that endurance over the years, or was that right away that you could start doing two, or did you start with like one person or start with like two or three? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, getting, yep. Uh if you, you were know, to somebody start time. that today. Yeah, it takes time, right? Yeah. And just like you said before, some people are just, I think, innately faster and can multitask better. Yeah. But I think everyone over time builds up their ability to handle more on their plate. Yeah. Well, and that's my hope is that um that I kind of start helping discover amongst a lot of um, experienced emergency physicians. What are one of those two things that you could do? Like, let's say your director gives you the, or your group gets your yearly performance or your quarterly or your whatever. And you're like, "Mm, I'm Dr. A on the A to Z list, A being the fewest and B Z being the fastest or something. You know, often those don't come with what can I do differently. Right. Um, And I also see that turn into, oh, I'll just stop documenting. Um, Maybe that's with a scribe. A lot of groups have a scribe now, so it's hard for me to know exactly where the documentation or it's just stop looking at the documentation the scribe does and getting it finished so I don't have an hour and a half worth of work after my shift that I still have to do. But that's that balance of trying to... um, build that endurance during a shift or, or for me, I think also those micro skills, um, of multitasking, like, you know, somebody else, I started doing this. I don't know why I hadn't yet, you know, get somebody else to get the interpreter dialed up. <laughs> um, I think part of it was cause we were moving around a video interpreter and things. And now I'm like, just, Hey, it's three in the morning. Can somebody get the Spanish interpreter, make them wait for a minute while I'm t- coming in the room instead of me sitting in the room trying to, have that wait for the interpreter to come up. That was, uh, that just made my like, I was like, why have I not been doing that a long time? All those little things add up. Yeah. And that's like in one shift, that's maybe five minutes. But if you start to look over the trajectory of, of all of the different tips and having the wisdom and the skill set to implement them all the time, And you know, Brad, the reality is everybody that's working with you, just like you, they want to do their part, right? So they don't want to stand there doing nothing. Right. They want to do their job. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of back to that team enabling kind of thing is trying to help them. How how can that nurse be helping you instead of being on Facebook or something else? Yeah, Because we're always intent. I mean, the system is built for us to be the rate limiter. Um, So you know that those other staff are going to have some slack time compared to you, but... um, but it's trying to figure out how to use their Slack time in addition to using your Slack time or whatever, if you don't have any. The um, other aspect I wanted to ask about was kind of around, kind of focused on qual. I mean, on efficiency, but I'd like to look at quality. Do you have any thoughts about maintaining quality while still being efficient? Whether we've talked a little bit about introducing yourself to the patient and hearing their story. There's a lot of quality and patient satisfaction in that. 
there any other tips or? Yeah, you know, I mean, we all, I think, want to practice to a high uh, level and a high standard. I think wherever you work, there is sort of a standard and we all want to practice to that level and push the boundary. Um, you know, one good thing about working back at Hennepin or working at um, North supervising residents when we were there is they keep you honest, right? They ask you a <laughs> lot of questions. So they keep you current, they keep you honest, yes. they ask you why you're doing things. And sometimes it's maybe not obvious to you why you're doing them until someone asks you because you've just like always done them that way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the most important thing to me is that uh, patients that come into the ED get good care. Above all else. Yeah. Uh, above the fact that the nurse might be mad at me because I made them do X, Y, and Z, or above the fact that I'm 10 charts behind in documentation, um, the most important thing is that the patient gets good care. Uh, it isn't even necessarily patient satisfaction because sometimes they're not satisfied, but if you know and you can look at yourself in the mirror and know that they got great care and you did everything you can and you advocate for those patients, um, it'll keep you coming back. Are there any self-improvement methods um, that you've implemented over the years around watching for your own monitor to my own, your own quality. For example, um, I don't meet a lot of people that consistently read every chart that they've seen, but they try to do some follow-up. Do you have any follow-up practices or just kind of your own peer review aspects of how could I've done things differently? Um, so yeah, so after every shift, you know, my charts now, I often finish in the next couple of days because I'm waiting for the primary provider, whether it's a PA or resident to finish that chart. Yeah. And so then I can go back and I make myself go back and look at five people that um, okay. I sent home to make sure they didn't come back that I was a little sure. bit worried about. And then I also make myself look at five people that I admitted to see like how long did they stay out. in the hospital? How did it play out? Um, those kind of things. Yeah. And um, and you still do that after many years of practice. I do. So you must learn I learn stuff every single time. Every and the time. other thing is, you know, I very much respect a lot of the specialists and the uh, internists that we're admitting these patients to. Yeah. So I'm interested in what Dr. X has to say about this lung problem that I had no idea, you know, was it COPD? Was it a restrictive lung disease? Was yeah. it something else? And their documentation that describes yeah. their thought process on how they got to their conclusion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, um, Back to the EHR, I'm continually looking for ways to implement a tool that speeds that up because I think for a lot of people, it's it's time consuming a little bit to click around and to find those patients. And, um, and it feels like it's so important to emergency medicine is that kind of just rapid follow-up that I'm still looking for technical ways to get you that next touch point of that patient in a digested way so you can just kind of quickly get those? Because I think there are a group of patients, you described picking five. Do you think you pick some at random or do you pick five that you're pretty sure you're interested in? I just pick them at random, really. Because I think the reason, I'm glad to hear you say that, I guess that reinforces my own opinion that the the ones you often learn from aren't the ones you thought you'd learn Absolutely. from. Absolutely. And so you don't really know what you don't know. And so if you're just following up on the weird, yep. oh, I just admitted and insulinoma, like that's one kind of follow-up. But if you're just like, let me just pick a random chest pain patient that I thought yeah. was not safe enough to go home. 
and then they discharged him home. Right. I <laughs> think it fine. teaches you a lot about the system you're working yeah. on, too. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. Um, and I think other, like you described, helping understand other specialists' level of concern often sometimes is very different than yours. Either lower, you're mm-hmm. they're a lot less concerned about something you're very concerned about or the vice versa. Like you're like, oh, I almost didn't admit them and then look at what they did. Yeah, absolutely. And found something or maybe not. But um, are there any aspects of... Um, I was just hitting the highlights of a professional practice of of the business of medicine that you feel like you'd love to share with either ways to simplify the complexities out there. I don't know how much in your career you've had in the management of business of medicine or if more just even from the clinical shift person like knowing work RVUs or even knowing what that is or level billing and coding aspects of the practice. Yeah. So actually, um, for our group here and for my last five years at North, I um, am the documentation billing oh, and coding see. person. So <laughs> doubled right into that one. Yes, it, it is not um, in my, it's not the part of medicine I love, but it is a part that um, when I was at North was offered to me as kind of a way to grow. Sure. And it's good and bad, Brad. Um, when you work and you just see patients, you don't even have to like think about that in a way. However, if you understand kind of the nuances of documentation, billing and coding, um, it helps you work more efficiently. Um, It helps tell a better story for the patient in the chart and it helps the hospital or your employer with the bottom line. Yeah, You know, I say a couple things to the residents and to my partners. I say, do the right thing for the patient and document what you do. And then, um, uh, you know, the rest of it will kind of come out uh, in the wash that you don't want to be documenting more than uh, you need to. You don't want to be documenting more than you do. You don't want to be doing more, just you can document more. Um, The key to kind of RVU increase in RVU production for any provider is actually um, seeing more patients. It's not seeing more complexity. So um, numbers always trump complexity. And you can go into the details of it, but I don't think that's necessary. You're much higher producer if you see four pretty simple patients through one room in two hours, then have one patient that sits and gets wait is waiting to be admitted in that same bed. Yeah, you know, in medicine, our only unit of uh, increasing RVUs are open beds, and if there are not beds open, you cannot see more RVUs. Right, and so that's where you would focus a lot of people's uh, improvement work. Less on nuances of the little documentation and more just about, hey, do an adequate job of documenting, do the right thing for the patient, and then push yourself to see more people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. And, you know, one of the things I realized when I came back to Hennepin is it was certainly, and I can look back to when I was here and when I graduated, it was certainly a hole in the education. So, you know, over the last four and a half years, I've worked super hard to improve that aspect of education for the residents. Um, They're interested in it. I didn't know if they would be, Um, but I think it certainly helps them out of the gate. I mean, I had zero clue when I graduated about documentation. I mean, 
and what it meant, what it entailed, what it needed to be, um, you know, what a level of service was, what a work RVU was. I mean, I did not have any idea. And so are there any rules of thumb around where you're describing if you do know a few things, you can be more efficient? Are there any aspects of that other than document, do what you do the right thing for the patient and document what yeah. you do? So I think uh, I'm a believer that um, not all your charts should look the same. So if okay. you see a simple complaint, yeah. it should be a very short, simple chart. It will make you more efficient. And um, it's actually an accurate chart, right? I mean, if someone comes in with an ankle sprain, it's a hard sell to me that you did a 10-point review of systems on that patient. And you don't need to. Uh-huh. Um, so it just saves you a lot of time and your charts look different if you're ever to get audited. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, uh, one aspect. The other is, um, that when you have a patient with a definitive diagnosis, like appendicitis or a hip fracture, yeah. you actually have to spend a lot less time documenting on that because, it's a known entity. You know what they have. Yeah. You should spend more time on the documentation of, you know, the weak and dizzy or the undifferentiated abdominal pain that in the end you don't have an answer for. Yeah. Well, I like that because we've talked a lot of, I've talked with others a lot about that risk adjustment type of mindset where, you know, an ankle sprain is an ankle sprain is an ankle sprain. There might be a missed fracture, but it's not like you need a, dot phrase that describes how I considered osteomyelitis or pathologic fractures and, you know, other rare syndromes when it's an ankle sprain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and especially if you ended up getting an x-ray, which may or may not add complexity from a billing standpoint, it does, but really it simplifies a lot of times your visit. You're like, well, I didn't, I even had to think less about yeah. whether or not to even get the x-ray. But, um, but I like that concept of when you do hit the definitive diagnosis defined by imaging or a lab value or something, you probably can really throttle back thinking about all the different other aspects of what you were considering. Cause not many people care at that point, including the level, the coding and documentation yeah, requirements to hit a particular level of service. Um, anything else in that area? Uh- I think, you know, kind of a general rule of thumb is you should spend 90% of your time documenting maybe 20% of your visits. Okay. And about, uh, you know, those are the ones that you're worried about or that something didn't go exactly perfect or there was a discrepancy in what you thought and what the specialist thought or, you know, there was a delay in care or the family was mad or something like that. That is where you should spend your time documenting or someone signs out AMA. You're super worried about somebody and they won't stay in the hospital. That's where I think, you know, time documenting more more isn't always better, but I think in that case, it probably is. And it almost sounds like you've got a little switch in your head that flips you from, I'm just putting in enough to get the chart Absolutely. done to the, here I'm about to dictate a paragraph and yeah. a half on the adventure that we undertook. Correct. Okay. And that's, I think, I, I'm finding that these kind of like, it's very, it's easy to teach and easier than not like implementing, like learning the level one through five, how many X, Y's and Z's. It's just a lot easier to kind of go. There's either complex or there's simple. And yeah. what you just described is there's like complex without a diagnosis is really complex. Right. Complex with the diagnosis is hit the marks, but don't you know spend a lot of time. Yes. And then there's the 
um, the misadventures or the potential ones that you spend a lot of time in. And in doing your chart reviews, do you feel like, I feel like you're someone who, who I could ask that question. Like you're hitting the mark. Like in general, I knew I could predict the ones that I'm glad I documented extra on. Or do you feel like you've often like, Oh, I should have put on a bunch more on that one. Yeah. Well, no, I think, you know, you've done this a long time. I have too. You sort of have this sense about patients that, you know, you know, pattern recognition or whatever you want to say, where the, you're just like, I just don't have a perfect handle on this. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I think every once in a while we're caught off guard, but I think even though maybe you don't know the end final answer, you do all the right things for the patient yeah. and you uh, in the end are okay. Yeah, there's a category that I had also, like the, you know the answers, but there's so many of them. You're trying to like integrate them and figure out what's the priority. You can't solve it all right now and what's the right next step before they go to the floor, which unit do they go to and managing all the consultants. There's an element that gets into the, documenting the drama that played out as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that helps you, somebody reconstructed either from a quality, why did this person get delayed compartment syndrome diagnosis or why did they, you know, you know the diagnosis in the end, but getting there or getting it managed wasn't clear cut. Those are the ones where I've at least talked to other residents, like you spend a few minutes, just maybe reread before you click sign. And is absolutely. there anything else you want to add yeah. instead of just firing it off and click, clicking sign? Well, that's, it's interesting to hear. And I'm, um, you know, overall, you've got a ton of great tips that I'm so glad to have. And, and, and I think you're good at like pulling them out of the air. I'm really impressed by, um, by that. So it's making it even easier to interview. Well, thanks. Brad. Sometimes I have a hard time even trying to, uh, ask a, a question in a way that gets to those, um, nuggets. I think I, I don't have any other real specifics about like a shift or professional practice. Is there, I wanted to kind of just ask you about general life around emergency medicine for a few minutes. Um, but are there any other practice aspects that you are finding that I didn't ask about that? I don't think so. Uh, that you're trying to get the world to know or see that your way? No, I don't think All so. Right. How about um, in leaving a shift fulfilled? Do you feel like you can uh, do a lot of these things, leave a shift and transition back to your personal life pretty quickly these days? Yeah, I think I can do it uh, pretty quickly. I think all of us, or at least I do, still have those few cases, you know, that really eat at you. Yeah. And I think um, when you have those cases, it's important to recognize that. Yeah. um, So that there isn't this downstream effect either on your life outside of work or on your next shift or on, you know, your next teaching moment. Um, But I think if, you know... I think one important thing is to realize uh, it's very easy for all of us to recognize the things we didn't do right. And right. we don't at ever really focus on all the things we do right, right? We right. remember the one case that didn't go the way we wanted yeah. it during the shift or that the one, one conversation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we all need to just take a step back and realize um what we do on a daily basis, we take for granted because we do it all the time. But um, to anyone else, it is like mind boggling. You know, whenever I have somebody um, shadow me for a shift, I'll have some of the coders shadow me for a shift or a college student or somebody like that or an administrator. It is astonishing to them how many times I get interrupted in eight hours. Yeah. Like that 
I cannot complete a task before, you know, three, four people come and ask you something else. And I think sometimes it's good to have uh, that outside perspective for you to sort of realize like, okay, this is why some of these little things don't go perfectly because I was going to do that. But then someone asked me to do three other things in the meantime. Yeah, I I appreciate you bringing that up. I think it's at a high level, like you described, the level at which anybody working in emergency medicine is functioning is just difficult to express in any meaningful way because you have built such a skill set to just function, like not just get the orders in and the right people, but just to be present and listen to those interruptions and have somebody feel like, this person isn't totally yeah. <laughs> unreliable. Just being able to be there is one thing and then be able to actually get a lot of those decisions right is a whole nother level of functioning that I think we all become totally blind to because we're just in it every day. We see our colleagues doing it, comparing ourselves to them. Yeah, um, I had a period of my life where I was sick and it became very clear to me how quickly all of that crumbled away and like basic life skills became my main goal and and I and I finally had this perspective of where I had been functioning, and um, I, I try to get back to that moment of like, wow, even at my quote worst, I'm still head and heels above head and heels above a lot of people out there. Yeah, and 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 that really helps me at times get to get through that maybe that negative self-talk or that rumination on a bad right. case or bad patient or something I just didn't catch as fast. Are there any other ways that you've learned that um, you know, get you back to I, the center? I think I've sort of learned over time to appreciate the little things in the patient interactions. Okay. You know, when you are when you have the five minutes while you're sewing up their thumb laceration to ask them about themselves, you yeah. know, what they're doing, where do they work? You know, what are they doing for X, Y, and Z? Are they going to watch the Super Bowl or whatever? And I've sort of, um, when I first started, I was so like semi-frantic about, you know, just keeping everything moving, not making a mistake, making sure I dotted all my I's, crossed all my T's. And I think the longer that I've done it, I have learned, you know, just to take a step back, relax. I think the patients feel that. Um, They feel that, you know, I'm more relaxed. I can sit down. I can talk to them. You can make some sort of a personal connection. And those things, you know, you learn a lot from your patients. Yeah. Um, uh, Just about life, et cetera. I mean, I've seen, you know, 150,000 patients or something totally absurd. And I've probably learned thousands of things from them. Yeah. That's one of those things that's hard for me to teach I mean, you could say it, but then like getting somebody to relax. I mean, it's sort of like you got to be comfortable with yourself. Yep. You got to be comfortable with what you're doing. And and that's variable depending on what you're doing. Yeah. And But that at least looking for those opportunities um, can be an important, like can fill your cup back up. You know, I, Jesse Nelson is in our group and talked about, I, I have brought this up multiple times where she, you know, she's like when she gets stressed during a shift, sometimes she'll just go and like lock herself in a room with a patient and just talk to him a little bit yeah. longer. She won't get into the interruptions you described yeah. or nearly as many. She um, will just trying to find a way to make a connection, which is why we're basically all doing this, whether we remember that or not as a different story. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the other thing is, Brad, when you work at a facility like Hennepin County, yeah. we serve a under 
under or underserved population, right? Um, and well, yeah, I call underserved it, by society, yeah. underserved by. It doesn't take long to realize how lucky you are, right? Yeah. I call it the lap of gratitude. If you're ever really feeling sorry for yourself, you take one walk around, and in 30 seconds, I guarantee you, if yeah. you're conscious of it, you know, almost every other person in this whole environment is in not a good a spot as you are. Well, and it's interesting because I think you can get so busy that you can be in that environment. This is my experience. And you can have that be, you could see it from a totally different perspective. Like, why aren't they making good choices? Why aren't they like in this negative? Why are they yep. here? Why aren't they doing this? And, um, but it only just takes a moment to reframe it. But like, wow, like think of all of the things that led them to this moment that made them either scared enough or not have enough access to any other tools that this is what they had to go to today. And, you know, if you think about any one of us, the the things that would choose an ER doc to go to an ER for their own care are such a narrow window right. of things that, and it's because we could self-manage so many of them. And that's where I've, I've tried to find ways to help myself when I get in that real pity or that real focused on the why isn't the world the way I want it, or I see it in somebody else, how to try to get people to reframe. Because I think that goes a long way to fulfillment in a long-standing career, because it can be really draining if you've got all these people that you're just letting suck the life out of you. Yeah. You know, you really cannot um, let other people's problems become your problem, but at the same time, you have to continue to have empathy. Yeah. And that's a difficult balance, but... Um, it's extremely important. Um, you know, I love taking care of patients. I mean, I really do. Yeah. Um, and some of the other things about medicine, the charting, all these other things, they wear on me. Yeah. But the true taking care of patients, why they're there, the conversations, difficult or not, they don't get old to me. They yeah. just... Uh, always open. I go into it with an open mind. I really believe taking care of patients is a privilege we spend, you know, the worst hour of many people's lives yeah. with them. And, you know, you have a chance to make a difference. Yeah. And and does it feel like you're most shifts able to find that in you in every day? Yeah. That's and I great. think working with residents and physicians assistants helps, you know, it's fun to be around people that are excited about medicine. And when you were at North, did you have a sense that your colleagues were close enough to each other where you had that with each other? Oh, too? absolutely. Yep. Yeah. You know, you're working side by side and we'd bounce things off each other and we'd laugh about things and we'd, you know, worry about things. And, you know, the other thing that I learned, Brad, uh, a lot at North, because I worked with such great people, is this, that when something bad happened, like a case didn't go well, all I could think was, for the grace of God, it was not me. And never did I think, you know, well, I would have done X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And so I think it gives you good, you know, pause not to criticize how other people do things. Yeah. Because, you know, in my mind, I was just lucky that that wasn't my patient. Yeah. That they, not that they did something wrong or that they mismanaged something. I yeah. think if you get into that, you know, uh, attitude that you can do things better than everyone else. Yeah. You get yourself into trouble and you won't have other people having your back. Yeah. And I think that's, um, there's a lot of aspects to being able to be around those other people and ask and hope that they have a close enough relationship that they would tell you, like, well, this is another way. Yeah. There's many ways you can do this that way, but there's another yeah. way that maybe you could consider. I think is, um, 
you know, it's it can really help when you get the validation that other people feel like, boy, I don't think I would have gotten even half that diagnosis yeah. or gotten to where you are at. And sometimes we talk about that in our group. Like there can be that restorative aspects to some peer review where you send something up for peer review that's just simply to help you figure out, yeah, there probably wasn't a better way to deal with what was it set of trains that were colliding before you even got to the scene. Yeah, so. absolutely. You know, I think um, the two most dangerous kinds of people in medicine are overconfident and underconfident. And, you know, the underconfident people are really paralyzed to make a decision. And the overconfident people don't think that they can do anything wrong. Yeah. And I think you need to really fall in the middle of those two so that you can function well, have some humility, have some insight into yourself and your practice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had some really great role models for that. And in here, back at Hennepin, I mean, I feel so fortunate to... Um, be working alongside of some of the people that trained me um, and, you know, how long they've done this and that they're still excited about medicine, practicing at such a high level, um, holding a high standard for themselves and for the residents and giving great care. Yeah, I think that's um, that community aspect to this is really just so important. And I think I, I, you kind of described the being here in the training program. And certainly that's been a huge part of my longevity, especially knowing I, you know, I practice at a lower level quantity of than others. And, and that's that, uh, that camaraderie and that lifetime learning as a group is really important. And we just had a sort of a change up in how we were scheduling ourselves into particular work areas in the ED. And um, we now have, where we haven't had before sort of an overlap of two staff docs where it's been probably a decade and a half where we would actually work near each other. We'd just be in different team areas, centers or yeah. areas. And that has, you can already tell it was even like the first few weeks that people were like, wow, it's fun to actually work that area a little more. Cause you can see somebody and yeah. bounce things off of each other or have that little bit of like, I'll go in here. If you go in there, okay, let's split up the, the challenging known the known challenging patients a little bit and that just feels like a different that's a different life than being really isolated and i know how hard in the community particularly at a smaller center that that can be really isolating and it's really tough if you don't have some kind of network to tap yep into. you know when uh maple grove hospital first opened up when we would go out there, we were single coverage. Yeah. And that was the first time in my career I was single yeah. coverage. I was probably seven or eight years in, oh. luckily. Yeah. But that's a totally different feeling. Yeah. Like, <laughs> because whatever comes through the door is all yours. Yeah. And it might be one person, it might be 12. Yeah. Um. So, uh, and that is, I think, where you really rely on your help. Right. That's so funny you say that, because that's like my first... I was mentioning before we started up that um, for a while I was at Hudson and our group had just started out there. And my first, my first real weekend of of emergency medicine, I'll call it, was just a weekend at Hudson alone. And it was me and this one nurse because we only had four beds, but we ended up seeing like twenty two patients during that shift. And I, I don't know how I, I did it. And I just kept saying, "Philip, just tell me where to go, what to do next." Yeah. And he kept, you know, just kept me going and. You know, we worked together really well and a um, lot of respect for each other, which got us through that whole time. And And I learned so much in that kind of an environment. Um, but, but 
you know, it, it, if you don't have those networks and the people, not, not necessarily other physicians, even just the nursing yeah. staff and the others that you can help get you through that, it's really hard to do it alone. Yeah. Or if you, you know, kind of lack the ability to lead those people. Yeah. Or you have the ability to turn them off yeah, <laughs> because right? you don't have either the people sense or the emotional quote, uh, intelligence quotient to, yeah. to sense that, hey, maybe I need to back off or I need to change my strategy, even though that may feel like the best medical way to do it. Or that nurse that's like, I don't feel comfortable giving that drug because it says here in this one thing, I'm like, all right, I could push hard or I could just, there's probably another drug yeah, that absolutely. I could get into and we could talk later about why you were so opinion filled on that one thing. Yeah, I mean, that's the art of it, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's so hard sometimes when you're, you don't see it coming or you're under pressure and you got a lot of other things all of a sudden have that. Like, I mean, I still can think of times when I've, I don't want to say lost it, but just been like, you could tell I was at the breaking point and that person immediately just got in the defensive and we had to just go back to our own corners and figure out a plan to get forward. Cause, uh, and, and that's where I think for myself, I've, I've worked hard to just get that pace through the shift. So you feel comfortable. You're listening to your own clues about what do I need to do? Should I have gone to the bathroom an hour ago yeah. and I didn't, should I have spent a little bit more time in that room or should I have talk to the nurse or call back that consultant who I felt like just ran over me. And I, you know, there's lots of things you can do in the moment to try to rebuild yourself. And I, I look for those often because um, it can be tough sometimes. And even just talking with colleagues is one. Aspect yeah, it certainly that. helps. So why well, I, um, I, I really appreciate you spending a lot of time with me today. Um, I want to respect your time and get you on the way on a day where the weather like many this month so far and last month are not cooperating with our lives. But um, are there any other aspects of emergency medicine that you would want to call attention to um, around um, just professional societies or initiatives that you're involved in that you feel like um, you'd like to represent? Because this sometimes is a forum just to spread the word about some aspect of medicine that others aren't paying attention to. Yeah, no, I don't think there's anything in particular for me, Brad. You know, my uh, main love is clinical medicine, and it's taking care of patients, it's bedside teaching, yeah, it's uh, people being excited about our job. It's one great frustration to me is when pe physicians say, oh, I wouldn't let my kid go into medicine. Oh, you're going right into my wrap-up. That uh, drives me bananas. I mean, I think this is like the best job ever. Any job, you're not going to love every day. I don't love every day or every minute. But, yeah. you know, I look back at the 20 plus years and I think um, how lucky I am to have been part of this. And I almost framed my podcast around that question to some extent because I had, I was on a medical student, um, like in, it was like a pre-med shadowing opportunity through the university, the pre-med program, and you could go to a local physician. And I somehow ended up at a local internist's clinic for some afternoon and evening. And he was just like, I don't know why anybody would want to do this anymore. And I was just like, how are you an advisor? <laughs> like, how are you... Like, why do we send people to you if this is what you're going to tell them? And But then I hear that. I've heard that through lots of other, you know, there are people out there who are constantly like, I don't know why I would do this. And 
And I just don't get it. I mean, I get why in that moment you may be burnt out, but it's hard to describe the whole profession, which has so many facets to it that you can always reinvent yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's many, many ways. You can be in the business aspect. Now you can be into this technology aspect yeah. and that. There's patient care. Um, you know, I've been doing this long enough that, you know, I've seen the full transition of it, right? Just yeah. from, you look at the hospital system. And how oh, right. uh, uh, those systems, you know, have really changed internist lives. Or, oh. I mean, you 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 were reading C spine films yeah. yourself, yeah. writing on paper, yeah, maybe dictating, admitting to figuring out who's on call for which group, which primary care group Absolutely. you had, um, not maybe using CT twice in a shift, or if if yeah. you're a lot on a serious patient, you call dealing for old with charts and they come down old in a charts, shopping cart. You had. Um, this is now turning into, I won't go yeah. there for like so many head CTs with motion artifact because the CT scanner was, was barely so there. Like, you know, there's so many aspects to how it's just transformed. Even, and even if you look at the next few years, it's already, can't even, you know, talking about ECMO and um, just sustained resuscitative techniques and it's just redefining what medicine is or what life is at yeah. some level. And, and that's going to, you know, you kind of have to be in that level of I'm here and excited about it because that's the only way I found that you can keep up with it yeah. is to find something to be excited about. I mean, it, it's a challenge, but um, I think most people don't want to go to a job every day. That's not a challenge. Yeah. Well, and I think there are times in your life when you want to, but it's that's part of that skill set of being able to sometimes fake it like you, you know, till you make it aspect of being able to show up and like, it's not my greatest day starting out, but let me just smile and try to find the people that build me yeah. up and go from there. And, and usually it all works out. So yeah, I agree. I'm sure that you're one of those people for a lot of the people here. So I it's love it here. It's been fun to uh, talk with you. And uh, thank you for sharing all of the tips and suggestions and just your general attitude. And um, most importantly, being there for all the patients that you've you mentioned uh Upwards of 150,000. I'm sure that's a probably an accurate number <laughs> given the number of years you've been in practice and um, the types of practice settings you've been in. So um, I know that uh, that's, as, as I told you, had a lot of influence on other physicians. And I'm sure I only know a fraction of them. So I appreciate you, again, spending time with me today. Well, thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts, or you can listen on the web at positivelydeviant.audio. There you can also leave a comment, tell your colleagues, or tweet me up. It helps spread the word. You can also leave your feedback to make them better, or you can give me your guest suggestions. And here's a standard disclaimer. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals alone. No one you heard here represents the organizations where they work. Now that you've heard that, let's shut it down. Until next time, thanks again for listening.